Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. I truly hope you've been enjoying this podcast format. If you've been following me on Instagram, you would have noticed I just finished a two weeks of a high frequency BFR bench press block. This training block was actually inspired by a paper I read from Yasuda where they studied the effects of low intensity bench press training with BFR on chest muscle hypertrophy. Therefore, what I thought I'd do in this podcast is review this paper, but take the opportunity to actually use my scenario as a comparison at the same time and talk about the difference between the two groups as something for you to consider if you want to try implement this into your own training program. In the study, they used 10 young men aged between 23 to 38 years. I'm just a couple of years older than that. Their height on average was 172 centimeters and a body weight of 66 kilos. Myself, I'm 185 centimetres tall on a good day and my body weight's 105.5 kilos. The bench press 1RM on average was 58 kilos with a maximum of 66 kilos, whereas my 1RM, although a little old, is 194 kilos. I'd actually just come off a period of French contrast work where I was able to actually get a lot of data on isometric bench press and velocity data at submaximal loads. Further to this, I actually had the submaximal velocity data when I lifted my 194 kilos as a really good comparison as they actually correlated spot on to my 1RM during that lift. The training history in the study was approximately one year, whereas I'd probably been lifting for about 20 years or so. Looking at their bench press 1RM, the loads used in the study at 30% was 17.4 kilos whereas my load at 30% based upon a conservative 180 kilo bench press was 60 kilos. So the load I was using in my study block was just the same as their maximum 1RM. The protocol that they used in the study was bench press, four sets of 75 reps, where the first set was 30 reps, followed by three sets of 15. My protocol adapted slightly. With the cuffs on, I performed a warm-up with activation and rehab-based shoulder exercises, And then I supersetted the bench press with some back exercises at four sets of 12. The pressure in the Yasuda study, they started at 100 mils of mercury and increased 10 mils every day until they reached 160 millimeters of mercury. The cuff width in the Yasuda study was not stated and it also said it was an elastic cuff. My mind actually then says, well, if it's an elastic cuff and they're actually pumping up to a known pressure, when they're moving, does that actually change? In comparison, my pressure was set at 160 millimeters of mercury and my cuff width was 6.5 centimeters. At this stage, the study looks pretty straightforward. Twice a day bench pressing for two weeks, one day off in the middle of it. The testing they used was a 1RM bench press, muscle cross-sectional area using MRI, so really good imaging. And they also took some blood markers of performance, so anabolic type hormones such as IGF-1, growth hormone, and also markers of muscle damage such as phosphocreatine and myoglobin. In my case, I used my French contrast data with the isometric bench and also the velocity data that I had. And I also had skin folds and girths taken as a measurement for any sort of muscle hypertrophy. Also must realize I've been training for about 20 years and I know in the last five to six years, I really haven't changed in size. Probably haven't eaten or trained any harder to elicit this type of change. So I was really excited if I was to add a lighter stimulus such as 30% bench pressing that I would possibly try and get some sort of gains. 
The only modification I did to this protocol was is that I included two heavier bench press sessions in the week. I'm a big believer that in well-trained athletes, you actually need to lift some load. I kept the cuffs on, but I still kept the load possibly sub-maximal. For example, in these sessions, on one day I did bench press with the cuffs on, I would do a double up to 140, and on the other day I used a Swiss bar and I would do fives on 100 to 110 kilos. The load was obviously higher than a 30% 1RM, however still not close to my 1RM. Now to the really interesting part of it, the results. In the Asuda study, on average triceps increased 8% and chest 16%. Whereas in the control group, they had no change. Myself, my biceps relaxed, improved by 0.7 of a centimeter, so 1.7%, and a flex position, 0.8 of a centimeter at 41.4 centimeters, improved 1.9%. My chest improved 3.6 centimeters or 3.2%. As I said earlier, my body really hasn't changed much in the last few years. So I was happy with small increments in this type of measurement and I didn't really expect much to improve in my arms because I didn't include any specific bicep or arm work in this training block. In the study, they showed no changes in anabolic hormones of growth hormone IGF-1 nor testosterone for pre to post. However, it must be important to note here that they didn't take acute markers and this would have been really interesting to see the difference between the control group who didn't use BFR and the BFR group if acute training did improve these really good anabolic hormones, as this would have potentially highlighted the changes that they saw in the study. There was no changes in the resting blood markers for muscle damage and phosphocreatine and myoglobin, and historically other papers have also backed this up. Now to the really interesting information, did it improve strength? The study showed that the bench press 1RM improved 6% in the BFR group and actually went backwards in the control. With respect to my own data, my submaximal data really improved out of sight. With respect to a load of 100 kilos, my best data over the last 18 months was 0.89 meters per second, and that improved to 0.97 meters per second, which is a 9% improvement in performance. With respect to when I benched 194 kilos, from 80 to 140 kilos, all my average velocity data improved out of sight. However, my isometric bench press actually went down a little bit. Prior to this was 1,860 newtons and actually decreased 9.7% to 1,764 newtons. For me, this just really indicates that I needed to be lifting heavier during this training block. I think this is just a reflection of my training age and also my 1RM and also sits well with other suggestions that there's no substitute for lifting heavy. If you need to be improving 1RM bench press strength and you've got a really well-trained, strong athlete, that's what you need to be touching on. The BFR, it's a really good addition to your training and can help get little gains such as small improvements in muscle girth and in my case, small improvements in my submaximal velocity data. And that also comes down to when we're training athletes, what are we really trying to achieve with this? Are we trying to improve our absolute 1RM? Or is it rather submaximal loads where we can move the bar faster as that have greater application to our sport? So that's really important to consider. However, in a relatively untrained population, if you want to get a quick gain in strength, that this potentially could be something that you could consider. My thoughts on this type of training is that, to be honest, it was pretty tiring. I was adding a lot of extra load onto my own typical training and this perhaps made my body tired. 
As I stated briefly earlier, the differences seen in results could also potentially be the difference between someone with a low and a high training age. And remembering that although I did add two heavier lifts in during the week, the maximum load that was only 140 kilos with BFR, I potentially needed to be lifting closer to my 1RM, so around 90%, and also potentially doing some partial range work where I'm actually getting exposed to loads higher. And I do know when I lifted the 194 kilos that I actually did do some 105, 110% work with eccentrics and board work to get used to the heavy loads. If I had my time again, the heavy load days would be without the BFR and ensure that I achieve heavier loads greater than what I did in my previous session. And also with athletes with a greater training age, Possibly, you don't need to do double bench press days. So you could potentially incorporate a mixture of double days and on your big heavier bench press day, just do one session perhaps. And as I've highlighted in other podcasts, it's really important when you read a paper that you really decipher between the subjects being used, the protocols being used, and does that actually apply to your own group that you're training with? Be willing to experiment a little bit with the protocols. It's really important to make this type of training work for you. I hope you've enjoyed that. It was really quite fun for myself to do this study and use it as a comparison when I've reviewed a paper for the podcast. I'm actually looking at repeating this type of training again, however, periodizing it slightly differently to include higher load lifting days and actually be a little bit more selective on the days that I do BFR and don't do BFR. Therefore, if you're really interested in hearing about these results, let me know and I'll make sure I put this into a podcast format. Anyway, It's now on to how you do BFR. So today on how you do BFR, I've got strength and conditioning coach from the Queensland Academy of Sport, Jordan Desbrow. Welcome aboard. Uh, Thanks, Chris. It's good to be on the show. Jordan and I work together at the Queensland Academy of Sport, both as strength and conditioning coaches, as I just said. And I want to bring Jordan on today to tell his story about his experience with BFR I'll get Jordan to give a little bit of background about leading up to before we use BFR and then how I came in suggesting how we could potentially use it to help his shoulder. Jordan, if you just give a bit of background to the listeners. Yep. Basically, I was a pretty keen gridiron player when I was uh, younger, coming through uni, and I played it for about three years. And while playing, I sustained four or so dislocations in my right shoulder. And then I basically had a bit of time off. I didn't play for, say, two years. And then my shoulder had gone to the point where it was starting to dislocate in my sleep. So it was at that point I sort of I saw a surgeon and it was recommended that I get my shoulder reconstruction done to repair my capsule and my labrum. And at that point at work we knew that you had issues with your shoulder. Yeah. Then we spoke about doing a pre-operative strengthening program and potentially using BFR because you also had issues with pain as well. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So my shoulder it would depending on the day or what I was doing in the gym, it'd give me a little bit of grief just kind of discomfort-wise, like sometimes with a bench press, with a barbell or with an like an overhead press. I wanted to be able to train pain and discomfort-free leading up to my operation and get it as strong as possible. So I think with the BFR, when I started here, I saw you using it um, on your legs a fair bit and I was, like, I was just interested generally about how it was used and, and what sort of methods we could use with it. So it was at that point when I sort of decided I was going to do a, a bit of a case study on myself for sort of preoperative strengthening of my shoulder. We had a bit of a chat on how can we incorporate BFR, so the upper body cuffs which go on your bicep, 
how can we incorporate those to build or increase my sort of strength and attenuate any muscle loss leading into surgery? We looked at research that's actually out there already. If you pre-strengthen the musculature around a joint or around an area prior to an operation, the recovery rate is a lot better and the success rate of the operation is a lot better. And then also there's a lot of evidence around using it post-operatively, passively to attenuate the muscle loss. And also, as Jordan said, he had a lot of pain in the joint and discomfort. And there's actually been some evidence around decreasing joint and also tendon pain. Therefore, putting all these things together that we read in literature, trying to make a really nice case study as well. Did you want to just explain what the program looked like? Yeah, sure. So leading into surgery, I had a a, sort of an eight-week period when I first decided I was going to do this. And it was at the start of that eight weeks that I got isometric dynamometer strength levels for my shoulder assessed, for, so for internal rotation and external rotation at zero degrees and 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. Got those done just as my pre sort of measures. And then from there, I constructed a prehabilitation program for my shoulder, which just included some external rotation and internal rotation with a TheraBand at zero degrees and at 90 degrees. There was an ATY series, which I did which was 10 to 12 repetitions of each position of shoulder extension in each position of the ATY. So all for my posterior cuff, posterior deltoid strength. And then the last exercise which I had in there was a lateral dumbbell raise. All the exercises were basically focused around improving shoulder strength and shoulder function, particularly of that glenohumeral joint. And then at the end of that eight weeks, I retested my isometric dynamometer scores for external and internal rotation at the two positions, both left to right. So let's start with what was your initial testing results for your internal external? Yep, on my good side, at zero degrees for external rotation, I scored 146 newtons. On my injured side, so my right, it was 133. There was a, a 9% decrement in external rotation strength, left to right or injured to uninjured. At 90 degrees, my external rotation on my left, uninjured side, was 169. And then on my injured side, so the right, it was 91, which was basically a 46% decrement in strength from the uninjured to the injured side. That's massive. Yeah. Uh, And even just subjectively doing that test, I didn't feel super confident with my arm in that position. So we measured it laying on my back uh, with my arm out to my side at 90 degrees. And just that position felt weak. And I was, I was pretty apprehensive, to be honest. From this information, you also were able to create internal to external rotation yep. ratios. There's some literature out there on different ratios and so forth. Did that match up with anything that's currently in literature? Yeah, it did. There was a few studies that had talked about the ratio of external rotation to internal rotation. One particularly talking about that 70 to 80% mark. My measures were around 0.65 for my injured side, which is below the ratio that the literature recommends to stay injury-free. That's right. You've already got an injured shoulder, and and it's showing you that these ratios are created for someone that could be predisposed to injuries, but it's already injured, so we know that. However, it has a baseline for you to guide yourself, I guess, from that next point when you post-operative, when you're going to return back to sport or whatever you want to do. Yeah, correct. Now, there was something else which I found really quite interesting, which I initially was a bit cautious on. You also wanted to do some 1RM testing as well. Yeah. So being a strength coach, I didn't just want to have the isometric dynamometer measures as my only measure in my sort of case study. I wanted some level of or some measure of 
upper body strength, both push and pull. I remember the first time I brought this up with Chris, it was, I said that I wanted to do a one RM bench press and a one RM chin up, which I hadn't done for three years or four years pre my injuries. And at the time he was a bit tentative. And so I said, oh, I don't know, just see how you feel. You might end up doing a five RM or something like that. We kept that in the back of our heads through the case study and it ended up getting to the eight weeks and I felt pretty good with my shoulder and with where the strength level was at. So I did decide to do the 1RM bench press and the 1RM chin-up. And before you get to that, I think also tell the listeners, this was really cool because I remember your first few sessions didn't feel great, but talk about just your range of movement, especially in your chin-up because you're doing full range chin-ups as well. Yeah, so I did the chin-ups at neutral grip, uh, full range. The start of my eight weeks was probably about two months post my shoulder dislocating in my sleep. So I was two months post my last dislocation episode, but when I started this, so my chin-ups were a bit shaky. I wasn't sort of confident to go to a full hang position. And I was just working through probably an 80% limited range. By the end of the eight weeks, I was quite confident going to the full hang position. And I was doing sets of eight body weight comfortably at that position. So it felt pretty good and felt strong. That was amazing. And what was the other word that you used? Well, you used confidence. Word, confidence and supportive. And I think yeah, that's, yeah. a lot of people sort of say that when they use the cuff on knee joints and shoulders is that the joint just feels supportive and the musculature feels active like it can support the joint. Yeah, the bench press was another one. Just the difference between barbell bench pressing with the cuffs and without the cuffs, I felt whether it was in my head, it was I felt stronger and I felt less apprehensive going to that position right at the bottom where the bar was on my chest. I could go, I could do full range pressing when I had the cuffs on versus sort of at the start when I wasn't using them. Sure. And then, so you had your eight weeks, you did your, your prehab. How often did you do that? And then your strength stuff was quite simple, wasn't it? The routine that I followed was I did my prehab program three times a week. And those three days were usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I did a, an upper body strength session twice a week. The days on which I did that rotated throughout the eight weeks. Normally, my prehab program preceded the strength session on, say, a Monday and a Wednesday, and then it was on a standalone session on the Friday by itself where I might have done a lower body strength session. So basically, it was the prehabilitation program three times a week and then the strength program twice a week. Those strength sessions, what did that consist of? So my program for that was six or so exercises. I went through our barbell bench press, anywhere between five to six rep sets and four sets. A chin-up, the neutral grip say four sets of five and then I progressed from body weight to say two and a half kilos between my legs or hanging by a chain towards the end of it. I did a superset of incline dumbbell press and seated row, three sets of eight and then normally finished with some sort of hypertrophy, a superset where it might have been front dumbbell raises and, and a TRX row and they were normally three sets of 10 to 12. So supersetting quite nicely, balancing between pushes and pulls, getting a little bit of shoulder work in there as well. Yeah. And also important to note that although it was four sets of six, it was within a good technical loading. So my four sets of six might have been 75% 1RM for my bench press. Some of the sets of eight might have been at a 10RM weight range where usually I had one to two reps left in the tank. And a lot of studies out there actually have a high frequency type training periodization twice a day for six days a week. This is a more realistic model. Three times a week, yeah. you do your prehab before your main strength session, only two of them. Let's get on to the results. Yeah, so if we start with my isometric dynamometer stuff, the external rotation on my injured side improved from, and this is at zero degrees, 
my external rotation at zero degrees on my injured side went from 133 to 171, which is basically a 29% increase in isometric strength on that side. Fantastic. And that was at zero degrees. At 90 degrees... So 90 degrees to the shoulder? Yeah, 90 degrees shoulder abduction. I improved from 91 newtons pre to 189 post. That's 108%. Wow, doubled. Yeah. And even like I was saying before, the post measure for that, I felt much stronger in that position and much more confident in actually completing the test. Fantastic. So that that was my big improvement there. In terms of my ratios, we were talking about that sort of 0.7, 0.8 mark is what the literature recommends for healthy, uninjured and risk-free. At zero degrees on my injured side, my external to internal rotation ratio went from 0.65 to 0.74, starting to push into that, that range that the literature recommends. And then at 90 degrees pre the intervention, it was 0.72. And then post, I got it up to 1.08. So that massive increase in external rotation strength and function got me just above that, the one-to-one ratio. And you also had improvements in your good side as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's also obviously important to note. But what's here, we've got a compromised joint, compromised function, where there's lots of pain. He's actually now able to get more into that, what we call a safer ratio zone, and he's actually feeling more confident. And for all the muscle heads out there who care all about bench pressing, what actually happened there? Yeah, so I I didn't have any pre-strength measures, obviously, just because my shoulder was at, at risk at the start of my intervention. By the end of it, so on the day of testing, which was a day before my surgery, I hit a 1RM bench of 92.5 and a 1RM chin-up of 22.5 plus body weight. And what's your body weight? 82. So you're benching over your body weight for bench press? Yep. And my chin-up would have been about 1.2. So my chin-up was also above my bench press. My pulling strength was above pushing as well. And this is at full range. So you've got to remember once again that you haven't got confidence in your shoulder initially. In eight weeks, you've gained confidence. You've got strength in this range. You've got confidence. You're able to do plus 22 kilo body weight. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, I was, I was super stoked with those results heading into surgery. Just with the amount of literature, not necessarily in shoulder reconstruction, but there's a ton of research in ACL that just states how much increased pre-operative strength and function uh, leads to much better outcomes post-surgery, which is what I'm chasing. Definitely. And you've now had the surgery. How, yep. Where are you at with your surgery? What happened? Uh, so I had my surgery. The surgeon said I'd done a pretty good job in there in terms of wrecking some of the structures. So I had five anchors put in my labrum and a a capsule reconstruction. So I'm now 12 weeks post-op this week. I'll go back and see my surgeon and my physio tomorrow. But in terms of post-surgery, I've been using BFR passively since about the three-week mark, both on my uninjured and repaired side. And then from about the six-week post-surgery mark, I've been using BFR in conjunction with isometric internal and external rotation with a cable and now that i've progressed to some band pulling and pressing work i've been using it with that as well and the other thing that you've been doing is that you've been lifting normally single arm on your uninjured side to yeah. try and take advantage of that cross transfer of strength from uninjured to injured where that neural pathway actually has been shown to help with some form of strength improvement yeah yeah Another thing that I have included in this, the post follow-up is getting arm circumference measures, so a measure of muscle mass around my bicep and tricep. So I've got that done at the pre-surgery mark, six weeks post-surgery, and then this week I'm about to do a 12-week follow-up. So that'll give us just another measure of how using BFR passively 
has helped attenuate and even build muscle in this post-operative period. That's right. And the really cool thing here is Jordan's actually put this together as a paper for the ASCA or the Australian Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association. So that's part of his level two accreditation. Hopefully that'll be published pretty soon. If you're part of the ACA, stay tuned and I'm sure you get to read that. And also what we're going to do from here is keep following and and hopefully do a write-up as a follow-up of how to actually improve your strength or I guess accelerate your strength using minimal mechanical stress and taking advantage of the metabolic stress used within BFR. Yeah. Uh, Anything else in closing around the use of BFR in yourself for your shoulder preoperatively or even postoperatively? One thing that was super easy, uh, even when I was in the sling, I could just be sitting at my desk, I was still doing work and be doing the BFR passively on my arms. One of the troubles of having a shoulder operation is that someone else has to pump the cuffs up. Chris was my go-to for that for the first sort of three to four weeks. I was annoying him when he was in the gym and when we were in the office. But it's just really easy to get those little benefits that are going to make such a big difference post-surgery. And I think if anyone wants to see the pictures of these exercises... Please let us know in the comments and I'll talk to Jordan. I'll get those photos and I'll put them up on the on the blog post as well so you can actually get a better idea of what the exercises were. They're, they're pretty simple, weren't they? Yeah, it was all, all simple stuff. It was just a matter of consistency and making sure that I was doing it all directly to get my shoulder healthy. I think that's the exciting thing is, as I said earlier, is that a lot of BFR programs talk about this double day, six days a week. You just did a normal program three days a week. You were consistent. There was no magic in the exercise. They were no. really the basic ones, but the best ones perhaps. Yeah. And if anyone wants to get a hold of you because you know, you've got a really exciting story around this and they want to contact you directly. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Jordan Desborough. So Desborough is just D-E-S-B-R-O-W. Well, thanks for your time, Jordan. Really appreciate it. It's a great story and really highlights how good this BFR could be for people, not only with lower limb, and obviously with upper limb injuries. We're going to be following his story and do a follow-up in a couple of months' time just to see where he's at. And I hope you enjoy this. And if you've got any questions, uh, leave them in the comments on the blog or in my own social media on Twitter or Instagram at Chris Cavillio. Thanks again, Jordan, for joining in. No, thank you. I can't wait to show everyone this post-operative results to come. Right on. And we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thanks. See ya. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump. (laughs) 